Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, uh, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John, and if you're uh, new to the church, this is what we do every Lord's Day. We, we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, we're in John chapter 12 and verses 20 through 36, so let's begin by reading these verses together, John 12, 20 through 36, and remember, this is the word of the living God. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it said that, and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Well, let's face it. It is natural for human beings to think that victory and glory are achieved through the exercise of superior power to dominate others. We want our team the 49ers, to beat their rival. We want to see our politician crush their opponent. We want to see our army destroy their enemies. And we will heap praise upon them as their victory is acknowledged. This is just the way we think as human beings. It's the way things work in the world. We simply can't imagine it being any other way than this. And it's not that this is always wrong, but if this is the only way that we think about victory and about glory, we will not grasp the profound wisdom of God's ways. And this is precisely what happened with Israel concerning their Messiah. For the most part, Israel thought of the Messiah as a king who would achieve victory and glory by using his power to conquer his enemies. And this was not without warrant because the Messiah was certainly portrayed in this way in the Old Testament. For instance, in the famous Psalm 2, God laughs at the nation's futile raging against the Messiah whom he had appointed king over the earth and he declares that the Messiah 
will break them with a rod of iron and shatter them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Or, again, in Psalm 110, the Lord enthrones the Messiah at his right hand. And then he tells him to rule in the midst of his enemies. And while the psalm describes the people of God serving the Messiah with gladness, it describes him, the Messiah, as conquering the rebellious nations, saying this, he will execute justice, judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is what the crowds were expecting when they hailed Jesus as the messianic king as he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in the text that we just looked at last time, John 12, 12 through 19. However, what Israel did not understand is that while the Messiah would indeed conquer his enemies through the exercise of divine power, this was not at all the complete picture of his ministry. For one thing, the universal judgment that is pictured in so many Old Testament texts like we've read in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, that would not come immediately upon the Messiah's arrival into the world. And for another, when he did arrive, he would first achieve a much different kind of glory through a much different kind of conquest than the Jews were expecting. This unexpected aspect of the Messiah's ministry was also foretold in the Old Testament, in texts like Isaiah 53, most famously. But the Jews had missed it because they did, it didn't comport with the standard human way of thinking about victory and about glory. And it is this unexpected aspect of the ministry of the Messiah, which Jesus, who is the Messiah, addressed in this text that we have come to this morning. So let's take a closer look at John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36, just to see what I'm talking about. To begin with, let's just remember where we are in the book of John. John chapters 1 through 11 is often called the book of signs because it focuses upon seven miracles of Jesus which signify or point to different aspects of his identity and mission. John chapters 13 through 21 is often called the book of glory because it zooms in and focuses upon the very last days of Jesus which culminate in the event which through which he would be most glorified, that is his death on the cross. And John 12 is like the seam in between those two sections. It brings the book of signs to a close. It leads us into the so-called book of glory. And it focuses upon how people responded to the signs that were revealed in the first 11 chapters. And at the same time, it describes certain events that would lead us into the second half of the book that focuses upon his death and resurrection. Now, so far in chapter 12, Jesus was anointed by Mary in Bethany, verses 1 through 8. She was a disciple who understood his true identity. And then after that, he is hailed by crowds of Jews as he enters into Jerusalem in verses 12 through 19, Jews who were right that he was the Messiah, but were wrong about what that meant. So now Jesus is in Jerusalem. And we pick up the story in verses 20 through 22. And there it says this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, the word Greek there, this doesn't just refer to people from Greece. It was simply a way of referring to Gentiles as opposed to Jews. They were called Greeks because of the predominance of Greek language and culture outside the land of Israel especially. Somewhat inside, but mostly outside. But the fact that these Greeks were, quote, among those who went up to worship at the feast, the feast of the Passover, indicates these were non-Jewish people who had come to believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they had admired or even adopted many aspects of the Jewish religion. So, for instance, the Roman centurion Cornelius, who's talked about in Acts chapter 10, or the woman Lydia from Thyatira, the seller of purple fabrics in Acts chapter 16. These are examples of what you might call these God-fearing or devout Gentiles that we see identified in the New Testament. And it was not uncommon for such God-fearing Gentiles or Greeks to join the many Jewish pilgrims who would come to Jerusalem for the feast, like this feast of the Passover. And though they couldn't be full participants in these feasts, they could observe them from a distance, which is why, for instance, the second temple had the court of the Gentiles. Now, apparently, some of these devout Gentiles had heard about Jesus while they were in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And that's not surprising given the buzz that there was about Jesus in the city because of the recent miracle that he'd performed, raising the man Lazarus from the dead just a couple of miles away after he'd been in the tomb for four days. That'll get a buzz going. Also, it wasn't surprising because Jesus had just entered into the city, surrounded by throngs of crowds, hailing him as the promised Messiah. And so, as a result, John tells us that these Greeks wanted to see Jesus too. But, perhaps because they were uncertain whether such an apparently important figure would receive Gentiles like themselves, they approached one of his 12 disciples, Philip. Now, Philip, John reminds us, was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Remember, that's a region far to the north of Judea. And it was much more heavily influenced by Greek language and culture. And so you see, Philip, his name is about as Greek as you can get. He was named after Philip of Macedon, the great Greek uh, ruler. And it indicated that his family, like many of the other Jewish families in that region, had themselves been heavily influenced by Greek language and culture. Perhaps this is why these God-fearing Greeks chose to approach him, Philip, to see if they might be able to see Jesus. Philip, it seems, is also unsure about whether Jesus would receive Gentiles because he doesn't go to Jesus first about it. He goes to Andrew about it first, who, remember, Andrew is the brother of Peter. He's always listed second in the list of disciples. He seems to have had a much closer, a closer relationship to Jesus. And Philip had good reason to wonder whether Jesus might receive Gentiles like this because it is true there were instances where Jesus did minister to non-Jewish people. We saw, for instance, him interact with the Samaritan woman back in chapter 4 of this book and in Luke 7, who can forget the centurion who asked him to heal his daughter and said, no, Lord, I know you are a man of authority. Uh, all you need to do is say the word. And Jesus was amazed at his faith. But at other times, Jesus had seemed to restrict his ministry to only the Jews. So, for instance, you remember when he sent out the 12 apostles on their mission of gospel preaching, he told them, Matthew 10, 5, and 6, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And when 
In that famous story where that Canaanite woman from Sidon asked him to heal her daughter. In Matthew 15, you remember Jesus had told his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, though he did end up granting her request. In the end, however, after Philip brought the matter to Andrew, it says Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, according to verse 22. So how did Jesus respond to the request of these Gentiles who were God-fearers to see him? Well, we're told, verses 23 and 24, there it says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now here we see something interesting. Jesus doesn't really explicitly answer the request of these Greeks to see him, but he clearly saw it as a signal that the time had come for him to die. And I think that the reason for this is that the request of these devout, believing Gentiles seems to in his mind, clearly foreshadow something that was coming. And we know from the rest of the New Testament what that is, the reception of the Gentile peoples into his new covenant community. But that would only unfold on the other side of his death and resurrection. So after Jesus rose from the dead, you remember, in his resurrected body, he would say to his disciples before ascending into heaven, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations. But Jesus knew here that that could not happen until he first died on the cross as a sacrifice for their sins and rose again to take his seat at the right hand of God in glory as king. As he put it here, the harvest of the Gentile nations couldn't commence until first he died and his body was put into the ground like a seed. Now Jesus indicated something similar later on in the passage in verse 32 when he said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, in this context, it's clear that by all people, he doesn't mean every single person without exception. What he means is all people without distinction, that is, from the context, not just the Jews, but believing Gentiles as well, like these who were seeking him. So when Jesus was lifted up from the earth, when he was lifted up on the cross and slain like a sacrificial lamb, he would by his blood ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation as the living creatures and the elders sing in their vision of Revelation 5. So it wasn't until his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection that Jesus could begin receiving Gentiles like these who were seeking him in John 12. So he saw their coming to him as a signal the hour had come for his death. But there are two things that we should notice about the way Jesus describes his impending death in, these, in this text. First, he describes it as the event through which he would be most glorified or would be glorified in a climactic way. So verse 23, look what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you know he's talking about his death because he goes on to say that he has to go down into the ground and die like a seed. Four times in, this, in the book to this point, we were told on various occasions that Jesus' hour was coming or had not yet come. Here in verse 23 of chapter 12, Jesus declared, his hour had come. And from here on out in the book, you will see, we're told three more times that his hour indeed had come. And the hour, of course, was the point in time when God had appointed for him to be arrested, tried, 
condemned by the Jews as a blasphemer and then handed over to the Romans to be beaten and mocked and killed by the torturous death of crucifixion as an insurrectionist. Now think about it. From the perspective of the world, this hour would be characterized by the height of disgrace and degradation and defeat. But Jesus describes it here as the time when he, his glory as the son of man, the messianic king of Daniel 7.14, would be most fully revealed. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now, how can that be? How can those things fit together? Because as he was lifted up on the cross by wicked men, Jesus would be offering himself up to God as a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of his people, bearing the wrath and the punishment that they deserved in their place as a substitute so that they might be forgiven and go free and be reconciled to God forever. This is why he expressed such distress at the prospect of it. It's the hour of his glory, and yet he says, Now my soul is troubled, verse 27, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. It was an hour of glory, but an hour of great distress he knew it was God's will for him to go to the cross but the horrors that awaited him there were revolting to his human soul you would see this come out more fully in the garden of Gethsemane and yet this cross of horror would at the very same time be the climactic display of both God's justice and his mercy, his wrath, and his grace, his hatred of sin, and his love for sinners. This is the mystery of the gospel. We see it articulated throughout the New Testament. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Blood and grace. Suffering and reconciliation. 1 John 4.10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. His death, our life. This is why the hour of Jesus' humiliating death turned out to be the hour of his climactic glory. Because as he was lifted up to die on that cross, to hang naked until he breathed his last, before mocking and jeering men. He was at the very same time honoring God by bringing God's ancient plan of salvation to its climactic end. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and yet his heel would be bruised in the process. It was an act of humble obedience and so it put the true depths of God's wisdom and love on full display for all who would have eyes to see what was happening at the cross. But the second thing that we notice about how Jesus described his impending death is that he described it as an event through which he would triumph over his enemies. Notice after saying that the hour of his death had arrived in verses 23 through 24, you see a little bit later on that he went on in verse 31 to say, his hour had come. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 
Now, the term the world in John's gospel is frequently used, not always, but frequently used, and in contexts like this, to refer to the world of fallen men, fallen humanity, living wicked lives in rebellion against God. And Satan is called the ruler of this world because he has been allowed to wield a sort of malicious power and influence over fallen humanity for a period of time. You see how all of this comes together in a text like Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, where Paul describes the condition of fallen humanity. He says this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The world and the ruler of this world. But here, Jesus says that the hour of his death would not only result in him being glorified, but would result in the judgment of this world and its ruler being cast out. In other words, somehow when Jesus is lifted up on that cross and he dies, he would condemn and triumph over all those who were opposing him whether that's rebellious humanity, the world, or the devil, whose interests the world unwittingly serve. And you say, well, how would this happen? You know, as soon as Jesus entered into the world as the divine son of God, the Lord's anointed king, the Messiah, he began his conquest of Satan's kingdom. You couldn't see it with your eyes, but the ramparts of Satan's kingdom began to fall. So, for instance, you remember when he sent out his disciples on that first gospel preaching mission, and they're casting out demons, and they come back to Jesus and they say, even the demons respond to our word. And Jesus says this in Luke 10, 18 through 19, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. You can't help hearing the echoes of Genesis 3.15. And over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. It's already happening, isn't it? And even though it says in Luke 22.53 that when the Jews came to arrest Jesus at the end of his life, he said to them, this is your hour and the power of darkness. But you know, in a twist of irony, it was by the very act of him giving himself over into their power, as it were, the power of wicked men, the power of Satan, who was possessing Judas, it was by doing that that Jesus was dealing his final blow to their power and would triumph over them. Hebrews 2.14, through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Sam talked about it last week in Colossians 2.14-15, when Christ canceled the debt of our sin as his people by paying it off through his death on the cross, He thereby, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So even as the world and its ruler, Satan, believed that they were destroying Christ by putting him to death, they were actually fulfilling God's predetermined plan to defeat all of his enemies and liberate a remnant of fallen humanity from the clutches of sin and death. Jesus defeated Satan by giving himself into his power. He defeated sin by bearing its guilt and punishment. He defeated death by being willing to die. And in this way, the hour of Jesus' death was not only the hour in which he was most glorified, but also the hour in which he triumphed over all his enemies. 
the problem with all of this was that this was not the, at all the kind of victory and glory that the Jews expected the Messiah to achieve. And it certainly wasn't the way that they expected him to achieve it. They were expecting a king like David who would achieve earthly glory by using his power to win military victories over the enemy nation, Rome, that was oppressing them. They're not expecting a king who would display the glory of God and win the victory over sin, death, and the devil by allowing himself to be put to death by the devil's agents as a sin-bearing substitute on a Roman cross. And so, for this reason, we see that our text, sadly, tragically, concludes by emphasizing how the Jews who were there at that time watching these things unfold didn't recognize the great victory and glory of their true Messiah King. So verses 28 through 30, it records Jesus as saying this, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. You know, there are three times in the gospel records where a voice, the voice of God speaks audibly out of heaven. One was at his baptism, one was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the third is here. And each time, of course, the voice is for the sake of those who are around And what was the purpose? That they might believe in Jesus, that he truly is from God. And yet we see here, even God's audible voice from heaven concerning Jesus was not enough for those listening to believe in him. Some of them didn't even understand the voice. It sounded like thunder. Others misconstrued it. An angel is speaking to him. And then, after Jesus spoke of being lifted up, And drawing all men to himself, it says this in verses 33 and 34. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, lifted up as a reference to the cross. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ shall remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? In other words, when Jesus predicted that he, the Son of Man, would be lifted up, would would die like a seed in the ground. The crowds couldn't fathom what he meant because they rightly pointed out that the law, the Old Testament scriptures, predicted that the Son of Man, the Christ, would reign forever. Now, we don't know exactly what passages they are thinking. There are many that they could have been choosing. But perhaps the most obvious one is the prophecy where the Messiah is actually called One like a son of man, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. There we hear the prophets say this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So from that, you can understand how the crowds are reasoning. If Jesus is the messianic king, the son of man described in Daniel 7, how could he predict his own death when the prophet said the son of man would remain forever? Now, of course, we know the answer to the riddle. It's easy, isn't it? After dying like a seed going into the ground, Jesus would rise again. And the harvest would begin and he would ascend into heaven and he would take his seat at the right hand of God and he would begin his eternal reign. But Jesus didn't explain this to these Jews. Instead, what we see is he just leaves them with a very cryptic call to believe in him before it's too late. Verses 35 and 36. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going while you have the light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. 
Now, you know from John's gospel, of course, that who is the light of the world? Jesus is the light. And why does he say that he will be among them only a little while longer? Because he was about to die in a few days' time. And then these Jews will be left in darkness, the darkness of their ignorance, the darkness of their sin, the darkness of the shadow of God's coming judgment. And as if to portend the fact that the window of opportunity for them to believe in Jesus was closing fast. You see the passage ends on these sobering words in verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So what is the main point of all this, this passage? What are we to learn from it today? Well, I think the main point of this passage is to show us what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. More specifically, John wants us to see very clearly here that as the Messiah, Jesus is not the kind of king who achieves earthly glory for himself by wielding earthly power to gain earthly victory over others. That was the kind of king that the Jews were looking for, that they thought that Jesus was as they hailed him as the king in the previous passage. Why? Because it's the kind of king that human beings naturally want. But instead, John reveals in this passage that as the true Messiah, Jesus was a king who achieved glory and victory through his death on the cross. The hour of his death was the hour of his glory because in dying, he would put both the justice of God and the mercy of God on full display. And thereby, he would reveal to the world that he was the true Messiah who had come to bring God's plan of salvation to pass. And through his death on the cross at the hands of sinful men, Jesus would end up winning the victory over his enemies because his death would ransom a remnant of sinful human beings like you and me from the clutches of our true enemies, sin, death, and the devil by in love and pity offering himself up to death in their place to satisfy the demands of God's justice against them for their sins. So, what's the main point? Jesus is a king who achieved glory and victory through suffering and death in obedience to God and loving service of others. And you know, we see this confirmed over and over in other parts of scripture. It's the wisdom of the gospel. It's the glory of the gospel. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Matthew 20, 28, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Of course, Philippians 2, 6 through 8, where it says of Christ, our king, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is, as we saw in John 10, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Or as Paul put it in Ephesians 5.25, he is the great bridegroom of his people who loved her and gave himself up for her. Through his sacrificial death, Jesus not only displayed the glory of God in a, in a full and final way, 
but he also won the victory over man's enemies on behalf of those who believe in him. This is what John wants us to see from this text. He wants us to see what kind of king Jesus was. Not the king that Israel, that people usually look for. Someone far, far better. And in response to this, of course, John is challenging his readers. That's anyone who's reading this book, even today, about how will they respond to this? Will they, like so many Jews in Jesus' day, fail to believe in Jesus because he's not the king they're looking for? So if you value earthly glory and fame in this life, you're not going to look for a king whose glory came through humiliation of a Roman cross. If you're not looking for someone to give you victory, if you're looking for someone to give you victory over earthly enemies or earthly problems and obstacles, then you're not going to be looking for a king who defeated sin, death, and the devil by his own death. If you admire those who achieve worldly acclamation and success through superior talent and power, you're not going to be looking for a king who achieved victory through suffering. See, if you share the mindset and the values and the lifestyle of the world of fallen men, then Jesus won't be the king for you. But if you come to see the perfectly holy and righteous God revealed in the Bible is the one true God and that you are his image-bearing creature, And if you come to recognize that instead of reflecting his righteousness in your life, you have dishonored and disobeyed him throughout your life. And if you realize that as a result of that, you are guilty before him and you are under his right condemnation and you are helplessly enslaved to your own corrupt desires and you are on a path to death and destruction, you're going to be able to see the true glory of Jesus. And how you need the victory that he achieved through his death on the cross. And the good news is that Jesus offers to save you if you will simply put your trust in him to do that. At the same time, turning from your sins, beginning a life of following him as his disciple. Listen to the words of verse 36 again. If you are an unbeliever this morning, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Or to quote the apostle Peter's words to the Jews in the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But finally, for us who have already believed in Jesus as our king, and we have put our trust in him to save us from our sins, and we have become his disciples, we learn from this passage something profoundly important, that the specific unexpected character of Jesus' kingship will have a profound effect upon our lives as his subject. We see this in verses 24 through 26, where after speaking of his own death and saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Right after that, he went on to point out in verses 25 and 26 that the same principle will apply to our lives as his followers. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In other words, just as Jesus' path to glory and triumph lay through the humiliation and suffering of his death on the cross, well, we who follow him have to expect to experience similar things for his sake if we want to share in his triumph, and in his glory. Let me give give you three examples quickly of what that looks like. First, if we're going to follow Christ, well, believing his teaching and obeying his commands without compromise 
may require us to be willing to suffer various kinds of persecution for his sake at the hands of the world around us. This is what he actually says this later on in this book. Just a couple days later, John 15, 20 through 21, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So your friends might ostracize you. You might lose your job because you can't compromise the teaching of scripture, etc. Second, if you're going to proclaim the gospel to others and participate in its spread throughout the world, then you're going to have to be willing to suffer various hardships in the process. This is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, so dramatically, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about him and his missionary team. We have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You see what he's saying? He's saying his missionary endeavors to proclaim the gospel and plant churches through the Roman Empire, we read about them in the book of Acts, that was full of so many hardships that he described it as if he was being given over to death every day. But the fruit of it was that the life of Jesus was manifest through him and passed to others. And the same will be true of us today. If we're really going to share the gospel, if we're going to participate in global missions. Third, if we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, brothers and sisters, in our character, over time, it's going to mean enduring many trials with patience. You all know James' famous words, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You have to come to grips with the fact that God has seen fit to use the sharp edge and the hot fire of difficulties in life, sickness and disease and injury and bereavement and financial loss and career disappointment and unjust treatment and betrayal and on and on to strengthen our faith, to refine our character. And so we're we're called to endure these things, bad things, hard things with patience because we know the good outcome that God has in store through them. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So there are other ways, Christians, in which Christ's Kingship will make our own lives as his followers cross-shaped. And though it will be hard, we have to press on because we know that's the same path he walked. It's our path too. It's the path to glory. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And on and on. Jesus is not the kind of king the world is looking for. You know, it's true. There's going to be a day when he will return in glory with his holy angels, and he will use power 
to rescue his people, to crush his enemies, to make all things new, as the prophets foretell. But what we've seen this morning is that his first coming looked quite different from what you would expect. Though he was the Lord's anointed king, he came to achieve glory and victory through suffering and death. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So may we be those who see and rejoice in this unexpected king through whom The wisdom and power of God are displayed in such an unexpected way. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a privilege we have that you have opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ crucified. What can we say? But thank you for making us sons and daughters of light. It's all of your grace. It's all of your power. Help us to know him more through our study this morning. And help us to gladly embrace a cross-shaped life that will reflect the character of our crucified king. And I pray for any who are here who are still lost in darkness that they might see the light, repenting of their sins and come to Christ for forgiveness and reconciliation to God, that they might join the ranks of the people of such a king. We pray in his name, amen.